to Pragmatic Live, Pragmatic Marketing's webinar and podcast series where we tackle the biggest challenges facing today's product teams. My name is Rebecca Caligeris. I am the Vice President of Marketing at Pragmatic Marketing, and more importantly to you, the host for today's event. Before we get started, a couple of housekeeping items. First, a recording of this webinar and a copy of the slides will be available after today's event. You'll be able to access them at pragmaticmarketing.com slash live starting tomorrow, and we'll send out an email with a link to the recording as well. Second, questions. We love questions. If you look to the right of your screen, you'll see a Q&A box. Feel free to enter any and all questions, and Josh and I will get through as many as possible at the end of today's event. Now, many of you are already familiar with pragmatic marketing, but for those of you not aware of us until today, Welcome to the family. Pragmatic Marketing specializes in training companies and product teams on how to be truly market-driven. We provide techniques for listening to the market and gathering market facts, and then using those facts to shape strategies and drive execution. And we've been doing this and doing it quite successfully for nearly 25 years. This month's box of the month is market definition. How do we segment markets into groups that share common problems and prioritize and analyze these segments to identify the most attractive targets for our offerings? It's a big stake box, one that can make the difference between success and failure. I mean, what if you get it wrong? What if you pick the wrong market to, to build towards or to market towards? And that is why Josh Martin, current director of product marketing at Logi Analytics and former industry analyst is joining us today. He is going to share his methodology and approach to validating marketing assumptions, including stories from the trenches at his own company. Uh, he's got a lot of great things to cover. He's got way better sound than last time he was here, and we're super excited to have him back. So welcome, Josh, and take it away. Well, thank you so much for the introduction, and thank you all for joining the webinar today. I'm uh, very excited to talk to you about uh, market definition. Uh, when Rebecca and I were talking about the topic, the thing that really stood out to me was uh, the notion of how research plays an important part in understanding what your market looks like. And based on my background as an industry analyst for many years before moving to the product side of the world, uh, I have a unique perspective on that and bring it to basically every conversation that I have internally. But before delving into the main topic, I'll give you a little bit more background on myself and the company. I work for a company called Logi Analytics. Uh, we compete in the BI space, but we actually offer what we term uh, an analytics development platform helping software teams embed analytical capabilities within their applications. So we primarily work with commercial ISVs, and as you can imagine, in an industry that's forced to deal with significant amounts of change regularly, reassessing the market is really essential to us for long-term success. So we'll talk about some uh, things that we've dealt with here at Logi. We'll talk about kind of market changes in general, and hopefully provide you with the tools that you need to understand uh, whether or not it's time to reassess the market for yourself and how you should go about doing that. So the agenda for today's topic is uh, why reassess the market. We'll really discuss and, and get in detail about why it's important. Uh, what happens if you don't reassess the market? When to reassess the market? How to reassess the market? And ultimately, who to target post-assessment? And this is the slide that will have the word reassess more times than any other slide you will probably see in your life. Uh, hopefully, uh, we'll uh, dig in right now. So let's start by talking about what market definition is. To me, market definition is really what you see on the bottom of the screen there. Uh, the top is pragmatics definition, but when I read that, I just can't help but think, do we know what the market wants, and is that segment big enough to support our product? 
Now, at Logi, in, in our last webinar that we discussed, uh, we released a product called Logi Vision, and we thought the market was right for it. Uh, we don't get into the nitty-gritty of that. You can go back and listen to that webinar if you want. But what we realized quickly was that without understanding the market properly, you're doomed to fight an uphill battle uh, for success. And uh, that's why over the last two years or so, we've really focused on understanding the market, reassessing and reevaluating who our buyers are, how do we identify them, how do we work with them. And obviously, a lot of that was borne out in identifying the proper personas. Now, the question is, we've done that about a year ago. We completed our persona work, and we continue to evolve it over time. But the question that really comes up frequently is, is this still right? As we release new products, for example, we have a new uh, predictive module that we're starting to promote. Is it the same market that we should be going after? Is it the same customers that historically have used our product? These are the questions we ask ourselves fairly regularly. And based on my background as an analyst, it makes sense that these are questions I want to ask and, and dig into. Now, not all companies have the luxury of having the time to, uh, to evaluate the market, and sometimes things slip and it's six months or a year since you've had the opportunity to really go back and assess, maybe it's two years. So this is hopefully going to give you the tools that you need, the conversation, and, and the reasoning why it's time to reassess the market and how to go about and do that fairly efficiently. So why reassess the market at all? There are three primary reasons that I would focus on, and we'll dig into each of these pieces individually. The first is that the market is changing faster than ever. This is probably not a surprise. Everyone that's in software or really any industry at this point recognizes that the increased change in a market is exponential, and I have some data to show that. But the bottom line is if you're standing still, you're falling behind, right? We all know the quote. We all probably feel it every day as we try to build out our product roadmaps and meet changing customer demand. Number two is that the competition continues to evolve, and not only is the competition that you're directly competing with evolving, but there are other alternatives to what your solution offers that are actually competing with you. You may not even know about it if you're not constantly monitoring the market. And finally, your USPs, your unique selling propositions, have almost certainly changed since the last time you evaluated this, and that's because uh, the market has changed or your product has changed somewhat. So let's dig into each of these reasons and justify why we're going to spend all this time reassessing the market. So the first is that innovation is accelerating. At Logi, we run a survey every year called the State of Embedded Analytics, and what that survey usually indicates is how companies are integrating analytics, how important they are to their application, we provide this survey for free. As a former analyst, I'm focused really heavily on making sure that the data isn't skewed. And what we found interesting was we ask about features that you're adding to your application or that you've already added to your application from an analytics perspective. And several years ago, two or plus years ago, we didn't even ask about predictive capabilities. It was just kind of really far in the future. Uh, this year, respondents indicated that 40% of them were actually going to have predictive capabilities within their application. And that's a high number, and predictive means a lot of different things to a lot of different people, so perhaps it's a little bit less than that. But when you think about it in the context of next year, 80% of respondents are indicating that they're going to add this unique and difficult-to-add capability to their application. So we went from zero just a few years ago to 40%, and that number is basically doubling in one year. So hopefully that is a, a strong indication, and we see this with a lot of other capabilities, right, things like natural language generation or AI. The need to add more and more and keep everything that you've built modern is only accelerating. Even the way that technology is developed now is changing. So we can see here uh, Stack Overflow does an annual survey. They recently released their 2018 data. Uh, they 
gained popularity. So Python popularity amongst professional developers increased 11% in a single year. Now this isn't necessarily to discuss Python in particular or development in general, but the point is in a market where uh, tools are, are somewhat static, but developers want to try new things, Python is not something new, uh, brand new and, and kind of out of the box, but 11% increase in a single year. So what we're seeing is that the way consumers adopt technology, the way software companies build technology and the capabilities that they deliver to their end users is accelerating at a very rapid pace. And this becomes difficult for software companies and really innovators in general to keep up with the market. Uh, I don't want to just suggest that innovation is happening in software though. Uh, I was looking as I was preparing for this webinar and it's happening everywhere. If you can't believe it or not that Heinz is releasing mayo chup, I guess is the best way to, to call that, uh, condiment in time for summer. So you get ketchup and mayonnaise in the same bottle. Innovation wonders will never cease. Uh, and joking aside, I mean, I was quite interestingly just looking for innovation in other places and this is something that came up immediately. And if you look at innovation across the entire industry and the entire market, um, it's happening everywhere. So yesterday Walmart made a big announcement that they're likely to uh, revamp their entire website starting next month because they realized they've been kind of uh, one up by Amazon and other brands that have co-opted their online experience. So these things are changing very, very rapidly. The other thing is that competitors are redefining your market. And uh, I must have made this slide after lunch because I found a lot of really great uh, candy bar uh, images here and it's right after lunch again, so they're very appealing to me. But the point of this slide is really that competitors are redefining your market in ways that you weren't expecting. So you look at someone like Snickers and they come out with hazelnut Snickers. And uh, as a fan of hazelnut, it's actually a really good candy bar, but independent of that, is that they've now expanded their market reach potentially to people that say, hey, that's new and different. Perhaps I'll try that. And maybe they like it. And then maybe they try a regular Snickers bar. The point of this slide is meant to indicate that you can resize your market with new capabilities and your competitors are doing this all the time. So now, for example, uh, someone that maybe didn't want to try candy before may be a part of the market and enter the market where they wouldn't have in the past. Uh, same thing with Twix. So Twix used to have a peanut butter version when I was very young and then it moved to caramel only. Uh, and now they moved back to peanut butter. So there are lots of competition in the peanut butter uh, candy bar industry, which are unique selling propositions. Snickers is an example of that and one of the reasons I would argue they're trying to move into new markets is because companies like Twix are actually competing with them and stealing some of their share with a peanut butter version of their candy bar. So what was once a unique selling proposition of containing peanuts or having peanuts uh, is now eliminated. And the last point here is uh, kind of far afield from the first two, but it's really about unforeseen competition. And the example that I highlighted was kind of a lowly, lowly flip phone. This is what phones look like. What, 12, 12 years ago, the predominant use case for phones was this phone. And you had point-and-shoot cameras. I remember about 10 years ago getting my first point-and-shoot camera and thinking it was kind of this great innovation. And I don't think most of those companies, especially someone like a Kodak, would have recognized that smartphones, which would eventually be what these phones turned into, would basically decimate an entire market and create uh, unforeseen competition for them, right? The point-and-shoot market is very, very different now. You see a lot of uh, DSLR cameras, which are more expensive and have different capabilities and features, but they've had to readjust their marketing. They've had to readjust their product because these lower end point and shoot cameras that were gaining momentum and popularity 10 or 12 or 15 years ago simply have a very, very stiff competition today with smartphones. So the competitors are ultimately changing what the market looks like. And that means you need to go back and reassess, 
are my customers still my customers? What's the size of the market? What's the opportunity for me? And then how to know your USPs have changed. So your unique selling propositions have ultimately become different. Uh, I would say there are three things you probably want to think about. The first is any roadmap diversions you've had in the last 12 to 18 months. And anyone that's managed product has probably been through this, right? I mean, I can't imagine that you've created a product roadmap that has gone unchanged based on customer demand. So when you think about how your product has evolved, maybe you've created a new feature set. Perhaps you've created a new set of capabilities or solved the problem that you hadn't solved in the past because it became important enough to resolve. Uh, but if you've had those roadmap diversions, it could mean that your market is different than it once was. Uh, and this is small-scale diversions, but if you think about it from a holistic perspective, for us here at Logi, we've kind of changed a lot of our positioning externally to talk about how we partner and work with OEMs, which is where we're most successful. And that's really changed the definition of our market, which is why we had to go through the exercise of redefining who our persona is and understanding how to speak to them about the benefits of our platform because we did make some of those changes in our roadmap that were unanticipated. Uh, new technology has been introduced to the market. So any market that you're in, there's new competition uh, from players or your direct competitors are releasing new capabilities and features. Uh, the things I tend to think about are things like data connectors or self-service or um, artificial intelligence. These are all capabilities that we track here to ensure that the, the market and our USPs are still relative to what we think the market is looking for and what the market is asking for. The third piece, which I think is, I think is pretty interesting, and it's something that I noticed as well, is that the sales team starts pitching off script. So you're walking off the sales floor, you're on a sales call, and all of a sudden a prospect is asking you about a whole host of different capabilities and features than what's maybe in the sales deck. And the reason that's happening is because the market has changed underneath you and the sales team, and this isn't just kind of a one-off situation, uh, has recognized at the front lines that your unique selling propositions have actually changed and they're trying to block and tackle to address those issues for you. But collecting that information from the field, which is part of this process, is really important. So hopefully now we've established that there is a significant likelihood that the market in which you compete has changed. Uh, the buyer segmentation that you've created is probably different than it was in the past. And there are risks to not reassessing the market. So let's think about what happens when you don't reassess the market. Um, as mentioned at the top of the call, I was uh, an industry analyst covering the mobile space for a really long time. Uh, and what I think was really interesting was kind of the, the change in uh, importance of different vendors in the mobile phone space, and the smartphone space in particular. So 10 years ago, Nokia was the dominant factor in smartphones across the globe from a volume perspective. They had 40 plus percent share uh, 10 years later, which is a pretty significant amount of time. They had a 98% drop, and that number would have actually been worse, except Nokia had a really good quarter in Q4 based on some new technology they released. But the problem was Apple came in, they redefined the market from under them, they changed the capabilities of the platform, and they completely redefined the market. So not only did they change the requirements for Nokia customers, but Nokia didn't go back and say, how can we change? How can we do it quickly enough? Obviously, Nokia made a lot of different moves, some of which worked out, many of which did not work out in order to compete. I'll give you another example from the mobile space especially. And uh, I remember many years ago, it was probably 2011, I was at CES in Las Vegas in the United States, and uh, they had a big, obviously the big consumer electronics show, and we had the privilege of meeting with one of the BlackBerry CEOs, Mike Lazaridis, and they got up and they were talking about the future of BlackBerry and this is how the platform is going to change and evolve and how they're going to become a dominant player in the space again because they had started to be co-opted by Apple's capabilities. 
And the thing that they showed to demonstrate that they were back in the market was that they had gotten Angry Birds onto their platform. And to me, at that point, it was a recognition of, okay, they really don't understand what buyers are looking for. It's not about a particular application. It's not about a particular game. It's about creating an environment in which developers want to flock to your platform, and they just they didn't get that. They didn't see it or they couldn't solve for it is probably the bigger example. And because of that, obviously, we know what's happened to BlackBerry. Now, what they did in the last few years that's been really smart is they've started to retrench and they focused on the enterprise and they still have a smartphone business but not really have a smartphone business because they went back, they reassessed the market, they evaluated what they did well in terms of enterprise capabilities, and they were able to release something that is valuable to the marketplace. So they've kind of shifted their entire company strategy as a result. And uh, we could just as easily have this slide for Microsoft handsets. We could probably have this slide for BlackBerry handsets. I mean, these were dominant players that missed change in the market and ultimately failed to catch up. And as we all know, in the market that we're competing in today, once you're behind the market, especially in a handset or software world, it becomes really, really hard to catch up to your competition because they're continuing to accelerate their capabilities all the time. Now, uh, those are other companies, and, and I would hate to think that I'm not without fault, so I wanted to talk a little bit about my own uh, lessons learned uh, while developing products. So I worked at a company called Strategy Analytics prior to coming to Logi, actually twice prior. Uh, I worked there, I moved to Virginia to work at Comscore, and then I went back. And what I did in my first term of service at, at uh, Strategy Analytics was I built a product called AppTrack. And it was a, a database product, we did a lot of web scraping, we looked at the most popular applications across the globe, and we built a, a fairly successful product. It made, I don't know, hundreds of thousands, maybe more dollars over the course of several years. It was up and running for a long time, and I was really happy with it. I left the company, went and did something different. I wanted coming back about a year and a half later, and we built a different product. And the product that we had built that time was about um, end users using, on their using their phones. So it was uh, tracking and monitoring them with their approval. Obviously, it's a touchy subject at the moment. And I tried to do something similar to what I had done with AppTracks. I built a database. I built a front-end or partnered to build a front-end interface. Uh, we brought it to market, we created thought leadership around it. And ultimately the experiment wasn't successful because what I learned was the market had changed. And as a market researcher, it's really um, without excuse that I say I didn't do my own market research. I went back to the company and I assumed, because it had been successful before, that the approach would be successful again. And after a year and a half of trying to get this thing up and running and off the ground and writing blog posts and talking to companies and developing uh, support materials for the sales team, we wound up just not getting a lot of traction with it, and the company went in a different direction with the product, and uh, they're still promoting it and selling it today. But at the end of the day, my failure to reassess the market created something that ultimately wasn't market ready. Uh, and that's a lesson that I took the hard way, and I think really informs a lot of the presentation that we have here today. So how do you know it's time to reassess the market? I, I would love to say that we should be always reassessing the market and thinking about how things should change and why things should change and how they should be different. But the reality is product management is a, is a tough gig, product marketing is a tough gig. You have a lot of requests and demands on your time and the likelihood of being able to deliver uh, market-leading information to your company on a regular basis is, is really unlikely. So let's start with the five reasons why, uh, five signs it's time to reassess the market. And we'll spend a little bit of time on each of these because I think they're all particularly important. Number one is that you have a forthcoming uh, product release, a major product release. You can even do this for dot releases in particular, but I would say if you're thinking that you have a major product release coming out, part of your launch strategy should be 
to reassess the market and think, does this still apply to existing customers? What are the capabilities of the platform that maybe are different than the capabilities I had before? Is this a brand new product and does it open up new markets to us? Does it give us the opportunity to talk about our company in a new and different way? Does it allow us to better compete with our competitors who historically we haven't won deals with? So that's a really important point because if you're having a major product release, you've created those features and capabilities for a reason, and you should really focus on how those capabilities translate into the marketplace and how you can leverage them to create a sustainable model for your product. So that's number one. I think that's a no-brainer, and we don't do major product releases, at least here, uh, you know, every six months, more than a yearly cadence, and you may do the same. So these are really good tentpole opportunities for you to evaluate it's time to make a decision here and trying to think about the market. Number two, this is one that I've heard here, which frustrates me, is, well, we've tried that before and it didn't work. The markets are changing dramatically, and, and one of the things that I think is interesting is frequently we'll go back to old decks of presentations from five, six, seven years ago, and what we found was the market back then is similar to the market now, but it wasn't the same for the last four years. So things changed, customers had different sets of expectations and demands and requirements, and we tried something in that four or five year period that didn't work, but something from five or six or seven years ago may have worked. So the point of that is really just, you don't wanna get in a mindset of, because something didn't work in the past, it's not gonna work in the future. You really wanna reassess. Now, if you just tried something two weeks ago, it, it may not be time to reassess the entire market based on that findings, but I would really suggest that if you are starting to hear that regularly with innovative solutions that you've come up with, that you should start considering time to reassess the market and provide actionable insight and data to suggest why it would work this time. The third point, another when you hear we've been doing it that way for years, so it's kind of the opposite of we tried it and it didn't work. Uh, sometimes you just get in the habit of doing things, and we all do this at our own companies, and we're doing it for the sake of doing it, and it's worked in the past, and maybe we're seeing a declining uh, set of results ultimately, but um, when you realize that the only reason that you're doing something is because you've been doing it for that way for a long time, it may be time to reassess the market. Uh, when you hear increasing rancor over bad leads, uh, this is something we've all dealt with, right? We've all been pull, pulled onto phone calls. We've all had to talk to prospects about where the roadmap is headed. Um, we've all had to talk to the sales team about the new capabilities that are just around the corner. Uh, every company has different sets of requirements. Every prospect has a different set of requirements. So it's not unlikely that you're always going to hear about bad leads, right? Sales is always talking about bad leads at some point or another. But when you start hearing it more and more, <clears throat> then that like means that the marketing team and others are talking to the people that you've talked to for a very long time, but your propositions have changed, and therefore they're not the right leads for your company anymore. That's a perfect opportunity to go and reassess the market and figure out who should you be targeting? Why did we move away from this market? How can we create USPs for this new market and really target them effectively? And then finally, if you're experiencing an inexplicable decline in leads or funnel conversion or win rates, like I'm talking about not just a little blip, one or 2% here or there, but you're seeing consistent changes in a downward trajectory across these different measurements, uh, there might be an, an issue there, right? You may be having issues at the top of the funnel bringing people in because you're talking to the wrong people in the wrong places. You could be having trouble within the funnel itself because the value propositions that you're highlighting aren't resonating with the people that took a phone call or a demo. And then ultimately you're not winning because you're highlighting capabilities that aren't really that important to the people you're talking to. Um, obviously there are other reasons for all of those things, but those definitely play a factor there. Now I know what you're thinking, but wait, 
I talk to customers all the time. There's no way I don't know what's happening in the market, and I certainly respect your opinion. Um, we, I talk to customers, I talk to sales all the time, but there's a difference between hearing things on a one-off basis and really thinking about strategically, how does this information factor into my plan, right? Now, these small pieces of information that you gather are certainly very important. But when you think about them, how does it, 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 you can't do a strategic plan every single day. So I would suggest very strongly that even if you're talking to customers, you wait a second and think, how am I using that information to shape the future of my product, the future of my corporate strategy? Because if you're not really doing that with every piece of information, it's hard because the information comes in as a trickle. Uh, there's an opportunity there to sit down and say, I'm going to go through a project for a couple of days, and I'm really going to think about what the market looks like, who we should be going after, how do we get aligned around those new people. Uh, and the challenges that you're going to face are the information, as I said, is, is not used tactically, or it's used tactically but not strategically. Uh, you may be reviewing win-loss data as it comes in but not in the aggregate form. And then are you sharing that insight across the organization? So you in product may be hearing feedback from the sales team or sales may be sharing information with the marketing team and marketing may be sharing, sharing with the executive team. However that works within your individual organization, you probably are dealing with that. But are you sharing it? Are you talking, taking a piece of information that you learn, confirming that it's the reality, and then talking to a bunch of people to make sure that that's what you're seeing? And the point of reassessing the market is really taking a deep dive approach. So I had a really nifty build on this slide, which doesn't seem to load. I originally it said how to be a ninja, 2.0. Um, I never saw how to be a ninja, 1.0. But this is really how to reassess the market. And this is where we're going to spend the remainder of the presentation, the next 15 or 20 minutes or so, talking about what the research component of this looks like. And hopefully, at the end of the session, you'll have takeaways to say, okay, these are five steps I need to take. These are the tools that I should use. And it's not going to be that hard. It's not going to be that intimidating of an approach. So step one, and again, my uh, marketing, market research background will play a big factor in this because at the end of the day, I hate to admit it, but I do really love doing research and understanding what the market looks like. So the number one thing that you need to do is to identify existing market assumptions. You need to figure out why are you doing the things that you're doing the way that you're doing them, and if You've been at your company for a very long time. You may have institutional knowledge of what that looks like, but by and large, what you'll probably find is that a lot of the market assumptions that you're dealing with maybe predated you or you weren't involved in those discussions and decisions. Uh, but the good thing is that a lot of that information exists within the organization, right? None of the things that are listed here have any uh, requirement for you to do a ton of work. So number one, I would say, is you want to review existing MRDs and PRDs. But not necessarily to read for the capabilities, and, and that's useful and interesting, but you really want to understand the assumptions that went into the product features that you're building, because then you can identify, okay, well, I, I understand that they thought customers really needed self-service, or customers really needed financial reporting, or customers really needed this capability because it wasn't widely available uh, in, in other applications, for example. And maybe it is widely available now, so we don't need to um, continue to think that. Another suggestion would be to talk to the executives at your own company. Now, hopefully many of these people have been there before. Uh, I know certainly at Logi, when we make big decisions about kind of market-facing activities and product-related decisions, the executives are always involved, so they have a pretty keen understanding and idea of what uh, the capabilities are and the market assumptions were that went into that. And they also have an assumption of what it is now. So it's important to ask them what they think the market looks like and compare that to your existing market assumptions. Then three other fairly easy things to do, although they're time-consuming, admittedly, 
is listen to sales calls. As I mentioned before, you may not uh, hear them pitching off script because you're not walking the floor every day or you don't happen to hear it. But by listening to sales calls, you'll hear, are they sticking to the sales deck? Are they not sticking to the sales deck? Is there one thing you're hearing everyone talk about that you can garner some assumptions from to see that the market has changed? You want to review marketing campaigns again, so this will give you really good insight into who the company is targeting, what they're saying at the top of the funnel, how these campaigns are performing, and this will give you some other indications of, okay, the marketing team is assuming that these are the, the market um, assumptions that we're making, right? These are the market requirements that we're looking at. And then finally, sales collateral, near and dear to my heart as a product marketer, uh, the sales collateral really speaks to your unique selling propositions, the challenges you identified in the marketplace, and you can, you can easily collect all this information internally within you know, probably a few hours. And then the one rule that I would highlight here is to not have any preconceived notions about what the market uh, assumptions are. You may think something, you may say, the, they clearly believe this one thing. But if you go in with that, several, that preconceived notion, then the likelihood is you're gonna find that information somewhere and not necessarily uncover what the true intentions were. Number two is a focus on validating your assumptions. There are three slides here in this section, and I'll start with the free abundant options because there are a lot of them. So number one is industry surveys. This is great. Pragmatic has an industry survey of product managers that we've relied on in the past, and I believe they have some new data coming out soon. Uh, you can look at companies like Stack Overflow. There are just tons of industry surveys that are out there for different market segments and not only market segments, for just individuals as well. So you can get lots of really good information. You can leverage kind of data from Facebook to get some information as well. Very easy to find. Uh, just you know, pop open Google and you're good to go. You can look at aggregate win-loss data. I wouldn't look at individual reports necessarily, but I try to look at a very high level. Are we losing more with a particular type of company in a particular vertical? And then you can drill into the details after that. Hello, Pragmatic Live listeners. You know we're passionate about product management, and we've been training professionals like you since 1993. If you're ready to increase product sales, reduce time to market, and improve customer satisfaction, register to experience a Pragmatic training session today at pragmaticmarketing.com buy. One area you might want to think about is evaluating competitors' positioning. Has it changed over time? Are they talking about different things? You want to look at influencer topics. So if you sell to, um, you know, millennials and there are several millennial influencers that you're thinking about, are they all of a sudden talking about fashion versus cars or something along those lines, which would show that there's a shift in the marketplace? Conference tracks are another great example because those are very tactical. And competitors and complementers, so folks that are selling to uh, your market primarily, and then finally thought leadership by companies targeting your persona as well. So that's a kind of sub-point to the competitors and complementers. There are good, good things and bad things about these uh, free options. Number one is that you know, they're free and they're easy to find and there are a lot of them. But at the end of the day, um, you're going to have to look to find what you need. So if you have a specific assumption you're trying to validate or invalidate, you're not, you may not be able to do that. It's not custom at all to your needs. And finally, the information may be biased, right? You should read the methodology of any survey data or information that you're collecting, but people could just be flat out wrong, right? You could look at an influencer and say, wow, they're talking about this one topic. It must be relevant. Maybe they just were paid to talk about that topic. So really understand um, the data sources that you're looking for.
The second option is uh, for validating your assumptions is will require more time and some investment, but they're still eminently doable. So number one is an online survey of your target buyer or maybe interested segments that you might want to go after to see if your new capabilities and features could resonate. Uh, we did this last year. I think I did a survey in the middle of 2017 of about 150 product managers and developers and executives, and we paid like $10 per respondent, and we got really good response rates. Um, we didn't pay to, I think we paid to host the survey a couple of dollars, but ultimately for less than $2,000, we got really rich information about companies that were evaluating analytics within their applications in the last year and a half, and it really didn't cost a ton of money at the end of the day. You could download market-leading software to see if they've changed how they present information to their end users. And finally, taking the conference track one step further, you could attend some of these conferences and then hear about the things that, uh, and the nuances that people are talking about and the topics that really matter and resonate. The great thing about this is it's very specific, it's targeted, it uh, allows you to understand how to position to your buyers, even if it's not perfect. Uh, the cons are it could be expensive if you're going to attend a conference. It could be hundreds of dollars, it could be thousands of dollars, and then you add in travel and TNA and everything else, uh, TNE and, and everything else, and, and you ultimately um, wind up spending thousands of dollars, right? And then uh, requires a time investment for you to actually go and travel and deal with the administrative work of booking your trip and dealing with all the hassles of those things, which always seem to befuddle me. Uh, so those are things you should consider. And then finally, validating your assumptions. These are kind of the costly and bespoke options. Uh, you can use focus groups, uh, pay people to come into your offices or hire a professional company to do it. You can conduct sentiment analysis. You can do competitive product comparison, hiring companies to compare and contrast why people are doing things in certain ways. And then uh, the pros of these are you get exactly the data that you need and want. You can really dig down into the specific questions that you're asking for. Uh, the drawbacks are that it's going to cost probably a lot of money, and it will probably take time to complete unless you outsource all of it, and then it will take more money. So those are things to think about. So some of the tools that I've considered and used in the past that have worked really well for me, uh, some of these will not be a surprise to anybody. You have SurveyMonkey for surveys. It's fairly inexpensive. I've also used um, SurveyGizmo in the past, but it's been a few years. SurveyMonkey has really upped their um, capabilities. Competition tracking is an interesting one. There are two companies that I would recommend. The first is a company called Virginista, and what's interesting about that company is they actually give you the ability to monitor competitive web pages. So you load up your competitor's web page or a web page that's targeting a specific user, and then it will alert you to when changes happen, and you can sort of set thresholds for changes, but you can easily see, like, did they swap out a case study and add a new case study? Did they give you... Um, a new capability of the platform that might be interesting and resonating and, and change the market dynamics. And there's also a company called Crayon that does something similar, but they track information in a slightly different way. Those are two companies that I've talked to and, and used services from in the past. I have no affiliation with them, but uh, it's just suggestions. For industry surveys, this is pretty straightforward. I just do a Google search for product marketing surveys or product manager surveys or developer surveys or whatever you're looking for. Um, but again, I'd suggest reading the methodology of any survey data that you're collecting. Uh, if you're one of Web Scrape, something that we've done in our most recent effort was look at all the blog titles for about 20 different blogs just to try to get some themes and develop some word clouds, which you'll see here, wordclouds.com. And really the best way to do it is through a Web Scraper. We use webscraper.io. We had one person on our team that was really uh, capable of using it, and we got I think 2,000 rows of data, and the data included things like what was the topic of the blog, who was the writer, what were the tags associated with it. So some of these tools are really cheap, 
or free. They're easy to use and figure out with a little bit of time, and they'll give you massive amounts of information to collect. Uh, we collaborate a lot internally here uh, for this particular project that I did internally. As we were reassessing the market over the last few months, I used Google Docs. It's pretty straightforward and uh, pretty simple. And then for word clouds, which apparently I do a lot of, seemingly, based on the decks I was reviewing for myself, uh, wordcloud.com is a free resource that you can leverage and take advantage of. And it doesn't give you full sentiment analysis, of course, but it does give you some highlights and information that could be useful to you as you develop your um, analyses, which is something we're going to talk about right now, which is analyzing your findings. So at this point, you likely have collected a lot of information, right? You've collected information from your executives, from your win-losses. You've looked at the competition, and, and you've looked at complementers of your platform. You've looked at topics, and you've all this information collected. And there are lots of different ways that you can analyze those findings. For me, I try to group information together. I try to find relevant information and piece it into different parts and then come up with a thesis. So I, I still, at this point, am attempting to avoid having a preconceived notion about what the market looks like. But quite honestly, as you're going through the data set, it's really difficult to not um, develop some theories about what's going on in the marketplace. The things you probably want to ask yourself as you're analyzing the data is, number one, like what assumptions that you've identified have been invalidated? And hopefully, in the course of collecting all your information, you have a list of five or 10 market assumptions and the segments that they're associated with. And then how do you segment the market for your changes? So as you think through, okay, well, we once had this capability and feature and we no longer support it, that means that we may not be able to support a particular market anymore. Or we added a new feature and capability and now suddenly we are open to a new market that we have historically not been able to penetrate. And then what will the executives think? This is something that's always on my mind is when I go and tell somebody, a CEO or COO or otherwise, hey, this market assumption that we've been operating under uh, is no longer valid you better have a lot of really good evidence to back up your claim because you'll probably get pushback. Some of these things are emotional. Some of them are just strongly held beliefs. Um, but I would really suggest having uh, strongly thought out arguments and data to back your points. So how do you resegment your market? Now, when I think about new business versus existing customers, you have to do things a little bit differently. But there are basically three groups you need to think about, right? You have companies that have been left behind, right? You've uh, bifurcated features or you put things into maintenance mode and all of a sudden, they're no longer served. And your goal at this point is basically to say, I want to reduce my churn risk because there's still a product and they're still happy with it. How can I do that? So from a new business perspective, you basically stop targeting these people. You don't want to bring them onto a platform that's going to be um, on maintenance mode. And then you eliminate internal focus on targeting those people. It's a pretty straightforward effort, although it seems straightforward at a high level, but at the same time, you need to explain how a new market is opening up because you don't want to go to the sales team and say, hey, by the way, we're no longer selling to 10% of the market and we're not replacing that with anything else. For existing customers, you want to provide them with long-term maintenance options and really comfort them with the idea that, hey, by the way, even though we're in maintenance mode with our application, maybe you want to find a smoother way of saying it, uh, we will provide you with ongoing support. We will add some new features to the platform. We will make sure that your solution still meets uh, the needs that you're looking for, even if we're not going to um, invest heavily in it anymore. Then you have a market that's still somewhat served, and here you want to keep an open upgrade path to them. This could be software, it could be really anything, but you want to reposition the benefits to target updated needs. So let's say, for example, there were three things that they had requirements for in the past, and one of those is no longer relevant or it becomes table stakes. Then you need to reposition and say, we have a new product that does this new thing, and we think based on your um, existing requirements, 
that this will service your needs and that will be something that you want to use and take advantage of. The way to do that is you reposition the benefits to target those updated needs, really focus on the USPs that you're releasing in your new product, because hopefully you're doing this around the time of a new product launch. You want to re-educate internal teams on how to position effectively, especially if you hear sales teams pitching off script, you want to make sure everyone's back in line and understanding the core corporate positioning. And then you want to update all the collateral as needed as well. You don't want to have things with old positioning and old market segmentation data in there. From a, new, from a customer perspective, you want to move to a new product in the portfolio. So maybe something doesn't serve their needs anymore of an existing customer, but maybe there's something else that could service their needs in the future. We deal with this a lot here, not from our perspective, but when customers are, or prospects are coming in because they've had existing reporting, they've used existing solutions, whether they're homegrown or something like Crystal Reports or SSRS, and they've realized that that's not going to work, and those companies don't have solutions for them to modernize their applications, which is why we have a solution in the marketplace. But if we had multiple items in our portfolio, we could transition people back and forth between sort of basic capabilities and reporting to something more advanced. So you want to make sure that, or hope, that there's some way to keep the business of those customers and potentially upgrade them. And then finally, you want to provide long-term maintenance options to these folks to let them know that maybe there are other capabilities coming down the road that will ultimately make you happy. And then new market, which is the most exciting part of all of this, is uh, winning share from the competition, you know, increasing your market size completely, growing the pie, so to speak. And this is where it gets really um, in-depth in and detail and also really fun because you get to create a persona on this new market if it's a brand new market to you. You can determine the most appealing platform benefits. You can conduct internal audits for product and packaging as you align to this new market. The really great thing about the new market opportunity is it's fresh. It presents a new opportunity for your sales team. It's just an exciting time. So I'm not going to belabor this slide too much. I pulled this from our last presentation that I gave uh, at the end of last year on researching your persona. So if you do have a new market, I would suggest going in uh, the pragmatic archives and looking through what that looked like. But there are basically three three efforts that you have to do, similar to what we did with the market, reassessing the market, right? You do an initial fact-finding, you parse and analyze the data, and then you probe for more detail and you align the company to these new uh, market segments as you're starting to go after them. So I'll show you a little example of some of the work that we've been doing. Uh, I think I briefly alluded to, but didn't get too detailed into the fact that we've been going through this effort here internally for the last few months. Uh, trying to understand and assess as we release new products into the market, does it change what our market definition looks like? And what I found, interestingly enough, was from about 15 companies that are targeting our persona, I wanted to see what words they're using to describe their product benefits, right, and what they're not using a lot. What I found were words like powerful and real-time, high-quality, innovative, custom, you know, all the marketing words that we love to use in the marketing team. What comforted me in this effort was, after going through 15 companies and websites and really digging in deep, was the idea that we're, we're, for us, fortunately, we're talking about the right things, which maybe is good or bad because, in a good way, this is what people are talking about. It's clearly what the market cares about. Uh, on the downside is everyone's talking about it, so it's hard to really break through in those examples. Um, but I think this is an important exercise because if you're talking about all you're talking about is pricing and no one else is talking about pricing, then either there's been such downward pressure in the market that pricing isn't really relevant, or because you're talking about pricing, maybe you're more expensive. Um, so those are all questions that you probably want to start thinking about. This is a word cloud because I've been talking about word clouds in the course of this presentation. I wanted to show one. So these were the product benefits that were described on the previous slide, uh, presented in a slightly different way. So you think, see things like 
data and product and automating and business and apps and fast and powerful. So these words really come through and from a marketing perspective and even from a product perspective, as you're prioritizing your roadmap, you can identify attributes of the platform that would appeal to these product benefits and make sure that either they're um, very important on the roadmap or being moved forward. And for marketing, it's also very helpful to talk about your product in an effective way. Uh, step four is about aligning your organization. Number one is getting executive buy-in before you start filtering this through the company. The last thing you want to do is make a major effort and you get everybody educated and everyone turned on the right side and then the executives come in and say, well, what's going on here? We don't know if we agree with this, these findings. I would suggest you hold different meetings for the product team, for the sales team, for the marketing team, and provide actionable takeaways. And the reason I suggest different meetings is because the takeaways are going to be different for each of those groups, but make sure the underlying information that you're sharing is the same and the takeaways are what's different. Then conduct a collateral audit, and then finally ensure the information is being infused throughout the organization. And that's really step five, which is how do you implement this solution? These are just a few very quick examples of ways that you want to make sure your new market messaging that's going to target your new segment will um, be identified. So from a product perspective, you look at things like your roadmap. Is it still in line with what the market is demanding? Your pricing and packaging. Has, has there been disruption in the market in terms of pricing and packaging over time that has led you to be out of scope with the market? You can look at things from a marketing perspective for, for your unique selling propositions, your positioning, with the sales team, you want to make sure the sales deck is up to date and the sales scripts are up to date because ultimately what's happening now is you've redefined what your market looks like and you've asked questions of the market and probably changed what it looks like. So you maybe have a, an existing market segment that you still kind of serve or maybe completely serve. Maybe things haven't changed at all and then you're probably not listening to the call anymore. But this is will help you implement these new solutions and educate the rest of the organization on what the market looks like for your new set of capabilities, for your product, for your new product, if it's something that's net new, and identify ways to um, grow your market base of this new product. So the results for us, at least, as we've gone through this is we've had some comfort in seeing that there are some things we're doing right. We've had some interesting findings and things that maybe we're not doing well. Uh, but quite honestly, this is a spoiler kind of, uh, we're still in the process of evaluating all of our data as we go to market with our new capabilities and features. So as we advance our platform, as we release new capabilities like predictive, uh, we have to continue to reassess the market to understand the value propositions that our platform affords. So hopefully uh, on the next webinar, if I'm invited back again, we'll be able to talk about some of these results and figure out if we were successful in assessing the market appropriately to position and sell our product. And finally, uh, we have a poll that we're opening up here, which is how many months ago did you last validate your market assumptions? And you have a few choices here. We have uh, about a minute of this poll that we'll be asking people for, and we will share the results in just a minute. Uh, hopefully it's not more than uh, you know a year ago, but what we found in some of our initial discussions with folks is that ultimately when you're building product, when you're doing marketing, there are always other priorities that have to happen and you really need to carve out time to do a project like this and the ROI on a project like this is, is unclear. So it's always difficult to make this a priority and sit down and say, for the next two days, I'm not taking customer calls and I'm not doing sales activities. Uh, I'm just going to focus on uh, evaluating the market and trying to understand what, what it looks like. So we have about hopefully 10 seconds or so left here. We'll see what the general findings are and then we will open it up for q and I've seen a couple of questions come through uh, as we've been presenting, and if you have any more, please ask them now. And with that, it looks like 
survey is over. It's always that dramatic pause. This is where we actually require our uh, host to sing. So if you could, if you could give us a little song as our guest, Josh. I would not right. subject your people to that. <laughs> I agree. Just a few more seconds. Up oh, there we go. Oh, there we go. Close. Interesting. Lots of uh, lots of no answer, but also a very nice mix. People that have done it recently, other folks that have done it uh, in the last three to twelve months, and I think this is a, a good indication of the challenge with prioritizing objectives that don't directly align with sort of product delivery, right, or or marketing uh, activities. All right, we've got a lot of great questions. So let's talk about, there's a few that are around roles and responsibilities and who do you see owe what activities. And the first one is, which role is primarily responsible for competitive analysis? Oof, well, at Logi at least, the competitive analysis piece falls to product marketing. But the reality is, it depends on how technical your product is, right? So if I was in a different role at a different company, uh, perhaps I could do it all myself, but we sell a pretty technical platform with lots of technical capabilities, and while I can fix my phone if it doesn't turn on, that's about the extent of my technical prowess. So I rely heavily on um, sales engineers and the product team to help highlight the differences in our product capabilities. So I would say from a project management perspective, I've seen product own that a lot. Uh, product marketing on that quite a bit. It also can live in product, but my experience has been product marketing, but you certainly want input and feedback. And that's where, for me at least, where something like a versionista, which I used uh, and mentioned earlier, was really helpful because it was able to show, wow, all of a sudden this company is not highlighting reports anymore. That must be something that doesn't necessarily resonate with their customer base. So there was a, a level that I could get to without support of others, and then I really had to loop in the technical folks. Yeah, and I think that reflects that what we see here um, with the clients that we teach and with our survey is that, you know, it is often owned by a variety of different people. I think different people certainly are consulted or contribute to parts of this, but I most frequently do see product marketing as an owner. I think the bigger thing is, is that there is an owner and there's someone watching it than where that person particularly sits. And you'll get valuable feedback from the sales channel, the product marketing channel, and the product management channel to feed right, into next question. the competitive Who analysis. generates or owns, again, along roles and responsibilities, sort of the unique selling propositions? How does that work at Logi Analytics? Is it product management or the marketing manager or someone else? So at Logi, the, the challenge for us to speak more broadly about the um, complete market is we, we basically sell a platform, and that's our primary product. We have some modules that, that plug in. So we don't have completely independent products. So I think my answer might change if we had 25 different products that we were selling and it wouldn't sit with one team. Uh, I know that I work very closely with the product team here, and they highlight the capabilities that are differentiators in the marketplace, and then ultimately we stress test that together. So how does it work against this competitor or that competitor? And, you know, ultimately we we come up with, you know, three to five, we actually have way too many right now, um, which we're kind of paring down a bit, capabilities, and we say, okay, now my job after the product team has identified what a lot of those capabilities are in conversation, right? No one individually owns anything uh, in terms of these processes. It's my objective and job to figure out what that means to the market. So uh, I take the USPs and create uh, tools for the marketing and sales team to use that are market-facing and can translate to end-user benefits. 
All right, so when I have a question about how do you go with the quantitative opportunity assessment or market potential? Oh, that's a good question, and shockingly, I didn't even include that in here. So uh, I would think you probably want to do something similar uh, in terms of how you assess and analyze the data. So, you know, from a methodology perspective, you would probably look at what's the size of the segment that I'm potentially leaving behind and how much do they pay me. That, that should hopefully be pretty straightforward because you should have all that data in your CRM system. In terms of identifying and forecasting the size of a future market, there are lots of different ways to do that. and something that I've done quite a bit. Uh, not here, um, but in other roles and responsibilities that I've had. And what you want to do is just really size the market. So you can figure out from you know, industry sources or uh, financial data or public data, you know, how big does that market look? What is it? How, how large is it? And if you can't get the size of that market, the, the kind of primary things I would use are if I'm selling something to a new market, I find a bunch of companies that are selling to them or likely selling to them. I'd see what their pricing models look like to give me some rough estimates of what the price should look like for my product, and that would give me a baseline to say, okay, I can charge $20 a month, $50 a month, $10 a month, whatever the number is. And then I'd come up with a, a three-pronged approach, which would be this is the very conservative size of the market with an adoption rate. This is a kind of middle size of the market with an adoption rate. And finally, this is kind of best-case scenario, because you'll probably be able to triangulate effectively around that if you can um, – come up with high and low end, but, you, you know, the reality is forecasting a market is, uh, is a bit of art and science together. So really thinking about what uh, those key assumptions are is really, really important. So do you really know who the folks in the market are going to be? How many of them are out there? Are they in the market or are they not really considering making purchases today? And all those factors should go into it. The, the one sort of key thing that I always do when I'm doing forecasting work is, to build the models in such a way that I can easily change the assumptions, so I try not to hard code too many things. But I would say that if you were able to pull census data or government data or workforce data or Facebook data, I mean, there's a lot of information out there. Even something like LinkedIn, if you go in and you're trying to target a particular audience or Twitter, and you put in a title and then you put in a country and then you put in some other information, all of a sudden it says the universe goes from you know, 100 million users to 3 million users. So even those types of sources that you may not think about could give you useful guidelines. Excellent. All right, one question that we all wrestle with, right? With the ROI being tough to show, how do you convince executives to buy into the efforts, cost, time associated with reassessing the marketing when they feel they already know what the customers want? Yes, that's a great question. Uh, I think that's a, it's a really big challenge. I've been fortunate to get buy-in fairly early on because we've been going through a lot of changes here at Logi and, and really trying to target a very specific market niche. But I think really what it comes down to are the key things highlighted earlier in the presentation, which is if you are looking at the market and all of a sudden things like win rates are declining or your conversion rates are going down, like these are indications that challenges are happening. So I would say the, the most important thing is have data to back it up because you don't want to just say, well, we haven't done this in two years, we should do it. You should say, we haven't done this in two years, and here's some data that suggests we may be heading down the wrong path. Or we're about to go launch a new product. We really should spend some time as part of the launch strategy to identify what these uh, market looks like and if there's a new opportunity. And then the third part, I would say, is as you're thinking about upside and opportunity for you, if you're identifying a new segment, for example, I would say size the market, right? Leverage some of the data points we just talked about a moment ago to say, I think there are 
100,000 people, and you can do some back-of-the-envelope calculations. I think the market size is, you know, 2 million people, and we can generate $5 a person, and over the course of a year, it's going to be X millions of dollars, or, um, and I think the, you know, one or two-day time investment to investigate that is worth it. Now, that's a theoretical conversation, right? It's easy to say those things, but at the end of the day, if your executives are not willing to budge even in the face of data, then you need to consider what that means for the future of the product and how you can position it as well. All right, so we asked the audience how, when was the last time they sort of reassessed their assumptions. How often, Caroline asked, is it realistic to, do you think it's realistic to reassess the market implement change? I would say realistically, probably depends on what the market is that you're in, but eight, my gut is saying 18 months. I don't have a hard and fast rule around this. I mean, after I go through my process here, uh, as we've been going through over the last, you know, couple of months, and, you know, we get waylaid with things like sales kickoff, and we have a user conference coming up, so we always wind up getting distracted by things, so it's not a hard, it's not easy to tell how much time we actually spend on it, but at the end of the day, the markets are changing quickly. I would think if you go more than 18 months without spending any time really thinking about it, it doesn't have to be this major effort every time you do it, but if you start to do some investigation and realize that things have changed dramatically, you probably want to spend a little more time on it. But what we found is that, you know, you look at the data I highlighted from the State of Embedded Analytics report that we'll be publishing next month. What we found is that in a year or two or three years' time, like 80% of companies are going to be integrating some sort of predictive capabilities. And whether or not that's uh, ambitious and, and that's kind of them being hopeful that they're going to be add those capabilities, that, that's a lot of change in just a few years. And I think it's really important to understand that, those changes happen quickly, and if you don't catch them quickly enough, you're going to want to play and catch up. But to me, about 18 months is enough for a gut check, and, and if you sense problems happening between those, you know, ten poles, you might want to say, okay, we've got to spend a little time on this right now. Excellent, excellent. All right, one more question we have time for. Uh, how would you, how do you take feedback from support and that, how does that channel into your uh, analysis? Yeah, that's, that's a fantastic question and certainly an oversight in the presentation. Um, the way that we work it here, or focus on support here, is a lot of that information goes, again, because we have a technical organization and I'm, you know, the marketing, I'm part of the marketing team uh, and product marketing, but I work very closely with the product teams. A lot of that information is filtered up to the product team and some of it is simply bug fixes and things that have to be addressed, but it's not necessarily, hey, we need this part of a product that's missing, the way those conversations tend to manifest themselves here is we have a customer success team, and that's usually when it's highlighted is to those folks, and it's something along the lines of, you know, hey, we're, you know, happy with the product, or we're not happy with the product, and we wanted this feature or that feature, and we're about to come up for a renewal, and we really need it. So here, we hear that differently, but really, the, the short-term needs of fixing bugs and addressing issues like that tend to manifest themselves in support. And then from the customer success team, we tend to hear the bigger picture issues. And then you combine that with data you're hearing from the new business team, and they um, all paint a pretty good picture of short-term and long-term objectives that you have to start thinking about. Excellent. All right, Josh, this was fantastic as always. Thank you so much for joining us. I appreciate you all taking the time to listen. I hope it was useful, and uh, hopefully we can do it again. Excellent. All right. Don't forget to join us next month, May 23rd, when the CEO of Eigenworks, Alan Armstrong, walks us through building dynamic three-dimensional buyer personas. All right. 
That does it for this edition of Pragmatic Live. Thank you for joining us, and have a great rest of the week.